Hello, hello. Welcome to another episode of the Making Sense of Islam podcast. A few housekeeping points before we begin. Every episode is accompanied by episode notes that highlight everything I've referenced. So people, verses, hadith, etc. They are all in the episode notes, which you can find at makingsenseofislam.com. Most of the episodes are short form, so the notes are few. But when you listen to longer form episodes, the notes are meant to be a resource and an aid. Number two. I would really appreciate it if you could rate the podcast on whatever platform you use and leave a comment, hopefully positive. And number three, every Friday I send out a short email called Coexist Ruminations that shares what I'm working on and reading in my four focus areas. If you'd like to receive these, please sign up by going to makingsenseofislam.com forward slash Friday. That's it for now. Enjoy the show. If you have ever spent time studying any of the Islamic sciences, one of the patterns that becomes clear is the attention scholars in the past gave to documenting principles, axioms, rules, aphorisms, etc. In almost every discipline, you will find these cataloged, all with the aim of making the study of that particular discipline easy. So, rather than always having to start with a minutia and then making sense of it, students typically learn these principles which provide important frameworks to make sense of it all. Now, while these principles are usually for students and experts of these fields, I believe that many Muslims seeking to make sense of Islam require their own set of first principles through which they can approach Islam as a religion and discipline of study and also draw conclusions that are both at one with the fundamentals of the faith and also compatible with our current condition. In this series, and at this point, I'm not exactly sure how long it's going to be, but I will say at least 10 episodes. I want to highlight some of these first principles that help us create a mental framework through which we can make sense of Islam today. Enjoy. So today I want to talk about a topic that is called Maqasid al-Sharia, which is something that I'm sure most, most of you have heard of. And maqasid are the greater goals of the sharia. And uh, as you've probably heard, there are five of these greater goals. We'll get into them into a second. But uh, it, it's, it bears mentioning in the beginning that this is a topic that is a product of later fiqh. This is not a, a necessarily a topic that came from the early experience of the Muslims with, with understanding the Qur'an and the Sunnah. This is sort of a later addition. And the reason is that when you dig into the minutia of the Sharia, there is a, an interaction that you have to keep in mind, which is every ruling. And what is the Sharia? It's just a bunch of rulings. It's a, a bunch of rulings that govern our actions. So our legal system is a system that governs how we act, what we call orthopraxy in, this, in the science of religion, you know, correct action, versus orthodoxy, which is correct belief, which is aqidah or ilm al-kalam, or has several names. So when you study the minutia of the sharia, you, you study these, these sets of rulings, but there's always a reason why the ruling is the way it is. So for example, if, if somebody asked you, what is the ruling and here the conversation is sort of amongst Muslims so they would understand this jargon. You know, what is the ruling of drinking alcohol? You know, everyone would say, well, drinking alcohol is haram. That's the ruling. It's, it's prohibited. 
Meaning if you do it, you incur a, a sin. If you stay away from it, you incur a good deed. That's the technical definition of haram. But then a question can be asked, why? Why is it haram? And this question with any ruling gets us another discussion which helps us understand the philosophy behind Islamic law. Why are certain things this way? Why are certain things that way? And this is in the science or our science of, of law. Uh, it's called al-illah. And al-illah is usually translated as the ratio legis, which might not mean anything to anyone. But the ratio legis in the, in the study of the law is the reason behind the law. What is the reason why alcohol in this example, why is alcohol per- prohibited? Then the answer will be because it is an intoxicant. So then one can also ask why are intoxicants prohibited? And then the answer could be or would be because intoxicants intoxicate the intellect. So then you can ask why does intoxicating the intellect produce an act that is prohibited? And here the jurist will answer because the intellect is the organ, is the faculty inside us that receives the divine commandments, that receives the Qur'an and the sunnah. So then we sort of said, okay, there... There's really no why after that. It's just that's, that's the, the, the set of questions. And that's just an easy one. And I'm, and I'm not saying we should ask why all the time. I'm just saying I'm, I want to place where these maqasid come from. So the jurists, when they start asking these whys behind the rulings, they started to see these patterns. And then they were able to extract or they were able to step back many, many steps until they had a, a macro view of the entire religion and they said all of the sharia, all of the, the, the rulings that we have, all of the, the um, advice that we've been given on how to act properly and, and how to, what to avoid and what to do, they're all based on these five meta goals. So these are what these maqasid are. That in some way, shape or form, you can put down the entire message of Islamic law to promote, to protect, to preserve these five areas. So these patterns, uh, th- this deductive sort of reasoning and, and process is, is perhaps why this is something that came later in Islamic law rather in the beginning. Whereas in the formative period, the jurists were more concerned with codifying the law. You know, how do we know how to interpret the Qur'an and the Sunnah? You know, but after a, se- after, you know, a century, uh, sorry, after a, a millennia of doing that, there were, you know, there's only so many laws that we can come up with. After that, we want to start to learn the patterns, and this is why it's perhaps a, a latter um, innovation, one can say. It's a good bid'ah. It's an innovation. Now, why is this one of our principles? Why am I talking about this? Because this is, when you step back and you are able to, to um, I don't want to say reduce, but if you're able to, to tie everything together to these few points, you can begin to understand what is Islam's meta goals in, in, in human civilization. You know, what do we have to offer other systems of belief, other uh, uh, philosophies, other you know, civilizations, and how do we compare and how do we uh, uh, get along with and how do we coexist with the other? Because coexistence is really something that the Prophet sought to do in all modes of his life. He was always living with other people. 
not everyone around the Prophet ﷺ was exactly, you know, like in love with him and, and obeyed him. Not everyone was like that. There were people that hated him. There were people that fought him. There were people that tried to kill him. There were people that tried to harm him. There were people that respected him but didn't believe in his message and, and stayed with their own beliefs. And the Prophet ﷺ coexisted with all of that. So the human condition is the condition of coexistence. Is, is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala create us in a plural condition as we recite in Surah Al-Hujarat, لِتَعَرَفُوا So that we can know one another. So this is a, a, an opportunity for us to, us to answer this question. What do we know about ourselves? And then how can we know about other people? What can we offer them? So I want to go over these five. And I know that many of you have heard them before. But we want to maybe think about giving them slightly different names. Names and concepts that are compatible with concepts that are predominant in the you know, in modernity today, so that these meta goals make sense vis-a-vis -vis our, our condition. And uh, I'll also say that there are also uh, different ways that these are listed in priority. And I'm not going to concern ourselves with that. There, there's no ijma, there's no consensus of what, what are the priorities. They're all important. And you can, you know, all different ulama have ordered them uh, in different ways. But nonetheless, um, you don't read too much into the, the order that I just wrote them down uh, for, for the discussion. The first is the protection slash preservation of life, life itself. So the, the message of Islam is very concerned with preser preserving human life especially. And anything that we can do to preserve human life and the quality of life is something that the Sharia is definitely going to put its weight behind. And, and also anything therefore that harms life in any way, shape or form is something that the Sharia is going to be obsessed with, you know, thwarting, stopping, uh, lessening, reducing, etc. So if we talk about environmental issues that affect our life, the air that we breathe, the water that we drink, uh, the food that we consume, all of those things that could affect health slash life. And again, don't get caught up on the word life. I mean, we could, even, we could e equally talk about health. The Sharia is going to be very concerned about how do we mitigate those problems? How do we fix those problems? How do we address those problems? So on and so forth. And when it comes to issues of human life itself, um, we have our own way of answering the questions, you know, questions of like euthanasia, uh, you know, terminal illness, uh, things like that. We have our own perspective and it's informed by this maqsad, by this goal, that the sharia is going to be very concerned about preserving life because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Qur'an, وَلَقَدْ كَرَّمْنَا بَنِي Adam." We have honored the human being. So our belief of what that means is that you know you you don't you don't just off somebody because they're old. You can't just off your own life because you know you've you've given up. That's not compatible with it, with this meta goal. But when you say that, sometimes people are like, well, that's antiquated, and you know they get upset, and that's not very liberal, and and that's fine. People can have their own opinions. That's, that's not a problem. But it's also helpful for us, for our own selves, to understand where does this come from. So this is why these maqasid are important, especially for you know people like us that are you know, from diverse backgrounds and, and skill sets and things like that. So the protection and the preservation of life. Life is very, very valuable. Any human life is very valuable. And this becomes very important 
it will become very important as we start to talk about uh, artificial intelligence and things like automated driving and uh, a lot of these companies that are leading the the race to these things are dealing with these moral issues if you know if you have a car that's uh, has an automated driving function and the car is about to you know fall off a cliff or like you know nick two people the car has to have some kind of there has to be some algorithm something that makes that car and that system make a moral decision which one is the lesser of two evils so these are real life examples and this is something that we are we should be very well if we're driving the car of course we should be very concerned about but it also concerns us of people of of our per, particular faith because the preservation and the protection of life is something that is paramount to to the sharia so anything that you've heard that's counter to the in the name of islam that's counter to this most likely is incorrect you know so people that talk about you know, violence and jihad and these type of things. This doesn't square away with what we just said because the fuqaha, you know, they read all of these rules and laws and asked all these whys and whys and whys and they discovered that this is one of the most important things that the sharia is trying to preserve and to protect. The second one, and again, I'm just to remind you, I'm not going in any particular order. The second one is intellect. So as we just mentioned earlier, the example of alcohol being you know, uh, in, uh, prohibited because it eventually destroys or, or intoxicates the, the rational faculty. Anything that preserves the human intellect is something that is paramount to the sharia. Now, when you sleep, for example, your intellect is suspended. There is no taklif, there is no moral obligation when you're sleeping. If you, you know, were sleeping and you were sleepwalking and you stole something, you know, you're not, you didn't incur a moral sin. You, you have to give that thing back when you wake up or you figured out what you've done. But, you know, you haven't incurred a moral sin because the Prophet ﷺ said, an ummati." You know, it, the pen has been lifted on my community, meaning there's no moral obligation in the instance of sleep. So this, you could argue, affects the intellect. Well, you're sleeping, your intellect is off. But then we would say, well, this is a natural process. Everyone has to get tired and they sleep. But if I uh, engaged in some kind of, whether it be uh, a, a, an intoxicant, uh, some type of alcoholic beverage or drugs, uh, and the Sharia has different terms for these different types of you know, narcotics, barbiturates, the Sharia also acknowledges they have different effects. The Sharia would say, as we would all assume, well, this is prohibited. But the reason, the question is why. The reason is that it affects negatively the intellect. It corrupts the intellect. But if you are in an operation and you take, you know, anesthesia, or if you've had an operation and you have to take narcotics, you know, I've had to do that for you know almost a year. That was the different situation because I had to because of the pain and and things like that. So. The Sharia wants to preserve the intellect, but also acknowledges that there are certain circumstances where that becomes obligatory. Uh, and you know, the medical examples are ones that you can always keep in mind because they're, they're easiest for everyone uh, to understand. So anything that's out there in the wider community that affects the intellect negatively, the Sharia is going to look at negatively. And anything out there that affects the intellect positively, the Sharia is going to look at positively. 
And this is really why the Prophet ﷺ, he said, Al-Hikmatu Dalatul Mu'min, that wisdom is the lost property of the believer. Wherever they find it, it belongs to them. So these meta principles help us understand, like for example, that hadith. If something out there helps the intellect, even if it didn't come from within the family of Islam, but it's something that's beneficial, the Sharia is going to want to promote that, advance that, uh, encourage us to use it, consume it, etc. Number three is religion. Now, traditionally when Muslims talk about this meta goal, they assume that this is only the religion of Islam. That the, the goal of the Sharia, or one of the meta goals of the Sharia, is to preserve and to protect Islam as a religion. And in that uh, sentiment is also this like hidden sentiment that, well, we're somehow we're better than the other faiths. And because we're better and we believe that we are right, we therefore have more of a right that our religion is preserved and protected, etc., etc. And this is not necessarily what the fuqaha meant by this. But religion as a wider phenomena than only our Islamic faith. Because remember, we believe in all of the pre-Islamic revealed religions. Whether they have been mentioned by name in our sources, like the Jews and the Christians and the uh, Magian or you know, Sabi'in or some people call, refer to them as Zoroastrian, whatever, or we don't know, they have not been named, you know, but you can't, you know, come across a, a faith community like Buddhism that has, you know, uh, an enormous percentage of human population or Hindus and assume that, you know, this is not some pre-revealed religion, that, that would be foolish. Uh, so we respect all of the pre, uh, all of the revealed faiths, and the concept we have for that we call them people of the book. And people of the book, number one, is much more than just the Abrahamic faiths, and number two, we are also part of people of the book. So all of the discussions about people of the book within the Islamic context also refer to us as well, because we are Ahlul Kitab. So when the fuqaha say that one of the meta goals of the Sharia. One of the meta goals of Islam in general is the preservation and protection of religion. This means that this is essentially our the beginning of how we would talk about what is what is referred to as religious freedom. Now, religious freedom as a term, I know it's a loaded term because it means different things to different faith communities. But we also have our own understanding of what that means. Uh, the Quran clearly says, you know, Lakum dinukum to you is your faith and to me is my faith. Whoever wills, let them believe. And if they do not will, they do not have to believe. There's no compulsion in religion. So on and so forth. So this meta principle means that Islam is very concerned and very keen on the right for people to preserve their religious communities. Us included. So... If people are Christian and they want to you know, build a church and they want to worship, they have the right to do that. If Muslims want to get together and build a mosque and have a place to pray, they have the right to do that. That the Sharia is not going to allow itself or allow us as people in the name of the Sharia or in the name of Islam to put barriers from people finding a way to experience and to worship the divine. Because fundamentally all of these religions and all of these physical spaces of religion in this example that we've been using 
are places and opportunities. First of all, they're places where Allah is mentioned. And in the Quran, Allah Ta'ala mentions this about you know, temples and monasteries and churches and mosques where Allah's name is mentioned. Meaning all of these places, Allah's name is mentioned. Now, of course, there are differences and there are theological differences. But these are places where people in their own way, according to their own faith tradition, and according to their own belief, experience, worship, and converse with the Creator of us all. And the Sharia acknowledges and respects that, and therefore wants to make sure that that is preserved. Whether we are a minority community, or whether we are the majority community, and there are minority other faiths underneath, or amongst, you know, uh, the population. So preservation, protection of religion is not something that is just limited to Islam. Number four is sometimes it's called honor, sometimes it's called lineage, and I want to offer another term, human dignity. And what is usually meant by this is the family uh, lineage, meaning you know, offspring and people maintaining their lineal lines and everyone knows who's related to everyone and things like that because we have a lot of rules, either they be zakat rules or we have a lot of rules as they relate to marriage that have to do with who's related to who and who's not related to who and who's marriageable and who's not marriageable, etc. But this maqsad, this, this meta principle is much larger than just simply family and offspring. It's about human dignity. And in this case, if we understand it as human dignity, it also means our human dignity in the place where we work, human dignity in the place where we study, human dignity in the common spaces that we live with other people, human dignity in our home, um, human dignity as, as in freedom of movement, the ability for us freely to move from one place to another. When the Prophet ﷺ went to Medina and he established the state of Medina, and he developed the constitution of Medina, one of the main... Um, articles of the constitution of Medina was the freedom of movement for all of the tribes that formed this new nation called Al-Medina, including pagan tribes, Jewish tribes, Muslim tribes, is that you can travel within these borders freely. So the fact that you can you know, travel from state to state, from town to town freely without anyone, you know, without a checkpoint and without having to be you know, carded and stuff like that, that's part of just human dignity. So this Meta-principle is much, much larger than simply family and children and offspring and who's related to who. It's about the dignity of the human being. Again, the Qur'an says, وَلَقَدْ كَرَّمْنَا بَنِي آدَمْ Indeed, we have honored the human being. And this honor is for, is for anybody. It has nothing to do with faith. When God says, وَلَقَدْ كَرَّمْنَا بَنِي آدَمْ He didn't say, وَلَقَدْ كَرَّمْنَا الْمُسْلِمِينَ أو لَقَدْ كَرَّمْنَا you know, this group or that group. Of course, there are differences amongst there are saintly people, not saintly people, you know, etc. But in this verse, Allah says, period, that we have honored the human being, period. So any human being has the honor that they were created by the divine. And therefore, they have the right to all of these sets of dignities. So that's also one of the meta principles. And then the fifth meta principle is property. Sometimes it's referred to as wealth. But property might be more appropriate because in the day and age in which we live in, it's about what you own. So it could be intellectual property as well. The ideas that people have. Uh, artists that have artwork and things like that. So 
The reason the fuqaha called it wealth is because that's usually what people owned at that time. So the idea is about possession. What you own, you have a right to. And you have a right for it to be protected. And you have a right that it's not stolen from you. So we would respect physical property, obviously money as, as possession, intellectual property, uh, you know, trade secrets, these type of thing. Um, you know, companies when they do businesses, I mean, we do this all the time, you, you, file, you sign an NDA, non-disclosure agreement, so you can openly share uh, ideas that are, you know, not to be shared to outside parties and things like that. This is one of the, this is not only something the Sharia acknowledges, but argues one of the meta principles, is that as people we have the right of tamalluk, we have the right to own things. And if we have these things and we own them, part of ownership is that I have real ownership of it, that no one can steal it from me and take it from me. Uh, you can't just go somewhere and take someone's house and take someone's stuff, uh, take someone's ideas and steal it. I mean, people do that all the time. But that's why they're pro if, they're, if they're found and discovered, they're prosecuted and they pay a penalty. Some people go to prison, etc. Um, but the Sharia elevates this to the point as one of its five meta-principles. So these five, even though I'm, I'm sure most of us have heard them before, or heard of them before, they're very important, well it's always helpful to review, but it's also important to realize that it is from these five that we can start to see how we would fit in with the greater community and the greater conversation about these issues that concern most, most of us, most people, whether it be here or anywhere else, and things like that. So I thought it was worth uh, going over and we can talk about it uh, each one of these really can be talked about at great length but I did I wanted this to be an overview of the five and I also want us to pay attention to some of the um, language I use to describe the five and that th they should not be limited in any way that they should always be expanded because these are meta principles uh, that talk about the vast majority of of how our faith operates and thinks. Uh, Wallahu a'lam.